Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Blue Wire. It's exciting to win money. Back out to Allen. History title. Is there anything you don't gamble on? Uh, not really. Gambling gods, fickle butt. Oh yeah, so easily offended. Gambling's not your problem. You're just an idiot. Welcome to the Full Slate Podcast, brought to you by BetOnline.ag. I'm your co-host, Cody Darwick, joined by my brother, out in Chicago, Tyler Darwick. Tyler, a little midweek pod here in, in April. Yeah, feels good to get back on the pod, talk a little sports, uh, talk to Chad Millman from Action Network, which was awesome. I just got this notification from CBS Sports about the NFL draft, and I guess this was ignorant of me. Obviously, I knew they were shutting down the event, but, like, I, I still assumed in my head, I was like, oh, well, the teams will be together, you know, the front office will be able to communicate. It's it's not like that at all. Everyone's still going to be in their home. So I don't know how that's going to work with front offices scattered across the country. It's essentially like a fantasy football draft. Yeah. Uh, you just realized that? I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I knew I knew the live event was shut down, but I didn't, like, put together the fact that, like, 
you know, Everyone's the GM, the coach, and the scouts are all doing a video chat. Like, that's going to be madness. Yeah, it really is. And even the fact that these guys can't work out, uh, they can't see a lot of the guys for workouts and things like that. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be, I mean, Zoom's going to be a, a wild place. I mean, all, you have all these reports of Zoom chats being hacked and things like that. Um, so teams, I mean, who's to say Bill Belichick's not above finding a uh, a hacker to basically hop into these different teams' chats that are drafting ahead of them? I was, I was going to say, Belichick and the Patriots need to be watched uh, especially close, but I think it'll have... I mean, they'll have a big impact, obviously, on this draft, but then just moving forward, the whole draft process, like you said, the in-person uh, workouts, because I could see this draft going one of two ways where it goes terribly wrong for not like a star, like Joe Burrows. Like, the Bengals knew they were taking him for months, but more like fringe guys or maybe guys that were more boom or bust you would take a risk on. If those guys miss, I mean, or if – even if you hit and you just rely more on film from the college season, maybe these workouts in the future aren't as heavily relied on and those dwindle down. So it'll be crazy. I mean, people have been criticizing the NFL. I think that's just the trendy thing to do whenever you need to criticize a sports league. But I'm glad we'll at least have some sports to talk about that week. Yeah, that will be exciting to be able to watch that. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of these teams draft guys from, like, Power 5 conferences, guys that have been in the mix, played in the big bowl games, maybe the playoff, um, ahead of some of the smaller school guys. I think those are the guys that have the most potential to basically maybe impress someone at a workout. So, I don't know, I think creates more opportunity for kind of diamonds in the rough later in the draft. But, yeah, like you said, Tyler, we had on Chad Millman uh, from the Action Network. He's a chief content officer there, formerly at ESPN the Magazine, ESPN.com. Um, so an awesome get for us uh, in the middle of this. Chad was very generous with his time, so hope everyone enjoys the interview with Chad Millman. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, sells hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live, daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open, 24 hours a day, and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Better online, your online wagering salute. Okay, and Tyler and I are very excited to welcome on the Full Slate Airwaves, Chad Millman, Chief Content Officer at the Action Network, formerly the Editor-in-Chief at ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine. Chad, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to do this. Yes, thanks for joining us. Um, so, Chad is a is a fellow former Hoosier, joining uh, Tyler and I as IU alum. And real quick off the top here, Chad, we just have to check in on this. So, IUBB, we we made the Elite Eight in this March Madness simulation that was going around on Twitter. Um, did you uh, did you get into that at all? Uh, our, our deepest run under Archie Miller. Yeah, right. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get into that simulation we had a simulation we called it the march sadness tournament and uh we launched it on selection sunday and we were giving away i think a thousand dollars to the person who whose team ended up winning the way we worked it was 
We had uh, a $1,000 giveaway. People signed up. Once everybody had signed up, we randomly assigned them a team, and the team that advanced uh, was the team that covered the spread, not the team that won the game. And so uh, Maryland ended up winning, and so we had, a, of the people who had Maryland, we had a random drawing. So I was very focused on, on how that pool did. Oh, wow, Maryland getting a Big Ten uh, championship since uh, 2000, so that's good yeah, right. for the conference. And before oh, right. we beat in that finals. All right, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, before we got right, Indiana yeah. Hoosiers. Yeah. Before we got started, we were just talking, and you mentioned you're from Highland Park in Illinois, and I live in Chicago now. I have a lot of friends from the Highland Park area. I got to get your thoughts on Once Upon a Bagel, because being a guy from New Jersey, I have a certain standard of bagels, and my friends from Highland Park think Once Upon is the best bagel place ever. So I wanted to get your thoughts being originally from Highland Park and now living in uh, Connecticut and spending time on the East Coast. Well, look, I'll tell you right now that uh, Once Upon a Bagel is a cherished, long-time institution in Highland Park, and everybody loves it. Everybody goes there. I actually go there every time I go back to uh, Chicago in the northern suburbs where my father still lives, and I have a lot of friends living in Highland Park. Um, but people in Highland Park also believe everything in Highland Park is the best thing. <laughs> and so it's sad because they truly don't know how much better bagels on the East Coast really are. Perfect. That, that was the answer I was looking for. Cool. So I guess we can continue this interview now. So that's positive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> great. Uh, but Chad, so you, uh, before action, you started at ESPN, kind of worked your way up the ranks there. So can you tell us a little about your background, I guess, kind of transitioning from IU and how you wound up at ESPN and a little about your journey there? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I went to Indiana and, um, you know, when I was at Indiana, my junior year, I studied in London. Uh, I studied abroad. <clears throat> and um, that summer, I ended up uh, staying in London and then staying in Europe for the summer. It was 1992. And I ended up interning for Sports Illustrated at the Barcelona Olympics. Um, and it was amazing. Like, I'm in the office every day and I'm talking to the most legendary of legendary Sports Illustrator writers and editors, you know, Rick Riley, Gary Smith, Alex Wolf, like a Mount Rushmore of Sports Illustrated writers at the time. And I was lucky enough to meet a lot of people there. And when I graduated from IU, I didn't have a job, but I moved to New York with the hope that I'd stay in touch with people at SI who I had met the previous summer. And if something came up, they'd sort of think of me. And because I was there, they would give me a shot. And so um, it just turns out that I moved to New York and started interviewing for jobs and was getting rejected everywhere and uh, was subletting a place on the Upper West Side with a buddy I'd gone to high school with. Uh, who happened to go on to create Game of Thrones. And, um, oh, wow. And I couldn't get a job, and he uh, had had an internship at MTV, and he got fired after, like, three weeks, and we were just, like, two loser bums that had no direction. <laughs> and uh, shortly after that, like a month into being in New York, um, Sports Illustrated called and said, hey, uh, we think we have a job for you. It's going to start in about four weeks. And so I ended up getting a job at SI, uh, that started at the end of the summer and had the beauty of not needing to stress about a job for the rest of the summer. So I had this sort of carefree four weeks in New York where I knew a job was coming and uh, didn't have to stress and got to really enjoy it. It was great. And at SI, I, you know, my first job was was 
uh, reporting on the NFL. I was a fact checker, and my job was to fact check Peter King's column. And so uh, I got really into the NFL and really into covering the NFL and learned so much from Peter and uh, spent several years at, at SI, and then ESPN started a magazine in 98, and I knew a lot of folks who were starting up the magazine, and they called and asked if I wanted to come uh, come be an editor in, their NFL, in the NFL department. Wow, that's a great story. When you first got to ESPN in 1998, were you just starstruck by all the personalities that were there, like a Dan Patrick or Chris Berman? No, you know, remember, ESPN is, in, is based in Bristol, Connecticut, and the magazine was based in Manhattan. They very specifically, John Skipper, who uh, famously became the president of ESPN, um, he started the magazine, and it was a very New York-centric business. Magazines were in New York. Um, John and the original founding editors, uh, John Papanek and Gary Honig and Steve Wolf, who I knew very well from Sports Illustrated, um, they uh, wanted to create a business that was magazine first, not necessarily ESPN first. And so um, the magazine was, was pretty distinct and separate from the rest of ESPN. And the experiences we had were were not sort of integrated. Um, I, I will tell you that there was one year where I was at a, a Christmas party for ESPN, and it was in um, it was at a like a club bar restaurant called Tao in New York, which was a pretty trendy you know place in the late '90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sitting at a table, and I was pretty loaded, and I was talking to a friend of mine, magazine. And sitting next to me was a guy who I thought was the publisher of the magazine. He looked exactly like the publisher of the magazine. He was looking at me. We were sort of bantering and stuff. And then he said something, and I laughed really hard, and I pushed him. ended up pushing him off the bench, and I looked at my friend, and she said to me, she goes, why are you pushing Dan Patrick off the bench? <laughs> uh, it turns out it wasn't the publisher of our magazine. It was Dan Patrick who <laughs> my face happened to look a lot like the publisher of the magazine. Um, but we didn't really have much to do with ESPN as an entity outside of like, you know, constantly trying to get us to be involved with ESPN. But the magazine really became integrated when we moved to, when I became editor-in-chief and the magazine moved to um, to Bristol from Manhattan. And then all of a sudden, you know, we were talking to people who are running SportsCenter and running ESPN.com and running, you know, studio programming and running um, like game day and sort of every game coverage. And so that that's when the integration really happened. What, what was your reaction after you kind of put two and two together that it's Dan Patrick that you just <laughs> pushed off the bench? Oh, we, you know what? We were both pretty loaded. We just laughed at each other. He, okay. la- he laughed and I laughed and I think we went back to doing exactly what we were doing. That's funny. Uh and so at at one point you you've written you've written a few books in your career the odds is one um that is really interesting that i've read before where you basically go to vegas uh for a college basketball season you follow the lives of three professional gamblers uh kind of through the ups and downs and and their background how did that project get started? One and then two. Uh, I know Tyler and I have both been to Vegas a couple of times. Um, it's good for a weekend. How is it being out there for an extended period of time? Oh, it's brutal. It's totally <laughs> brutal. Uh, I used to hate hate dread going. Um, that happened because, like you said, I'd written a bunch of books, 
And it's really what I love to do more than anything. And um, that was the second book that I wrote, The Odds. And it came about because I was an editor at the magazine. And a, a colleague of mine had been assigned a very short one-page story uh, for the front of the magazine around the time of the NCAA tournament <clears throat> in 1999. And um, it was about sort of the guys who set the point spreads that are the first dominoes to fall in this multi-billion dollar industry that people don't know a lot about. And so he was doing the reporting on it. And then in the middle of it, he was given an assignment by a different editor for a much bigger story, like a four-page feature, not just a short one-page thing. And he really wanted to go do that. He wanted to upgrade his assignment. And so he just said to me, hey, can you take this over? Like, I got a bunch of notes. I called this guy. You can call him back and, you know, see what you can make of it. And I'm like, yeah, fine. So I go to do the story and I call Joe Lupo, who was the bookmaker at the Stardust Hotel. We have a great conversation. He's telling me about the interplay of the bookmakers and the professional bettors and how the bookmakers will set lines and professional bettors will start betting those lines and bookmakers will move the lines and all of a sudden the line is sort of solidified and then that's the line that gets picked up by other bookmakers throughout the country and throughout the world. And I just thought this microcosm of competition representing a much broader industry that branches out in ways that as a sports fan – I just wasn't aware of this whole shadow conversation sports fans had. I thought it was fascinating, and I was looking for a new book to do. And so I spoke to Joe, and I'm like, hey, I got this idea. I think it'd be interesting to be in Vegas and track bookmakers and track professional bettors. And he said, yeah, that sounds good. And he connected me with a guy who at the time uh, named Alan Boston was the premier college basketball better, like betting millions of dollars on a you know college basketball weekend. And um, – Alan called me and he's a real character. Like I, I still keep, literally spoke to him today. It's, it's, you know, he was calling to check in and see how people are doing. And, um, and I ended up writing the odds. I was in Vegas for the better part of six months, you know, going out for 10 days, two weeks at a time and spending time with all the folks there. And it was a blast. Uh, Vegas is a hard place to be for an extended period of time. But when you're there for work and you're reporting and every day you're, you know, getting these great anecdotes and stories from these real professional gamblers. It's uh, it's a treat. You mentioned, um, you know, after you wrote the book, spent the time in Vegas, you went back to ESPN and created the gambling beat, but there was ESPN kind of had a relationship with gambling and you said it was kind of anxious. They didn't want to really recognize it. Why do you, why do you think that was at the time? Oh, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I think um, one, the, the uh, network's relationships with professional sports leagues, um, it just made them nervous. Uh, and the small amount of coverage that we would do for gambling uh, was not worth the headache for um, billion-dollar partnerships, number one. Number two, it wasn't legal everywhere. And so I think ESPN, given the fact it wasn't legal and they had these relationships, just felt like, even though we know it's a big part of sports, because it's not legal, it's not really worth uh, the effort or the time. And so um, they chose to, for for a variety of reasons, and I can't I can't sort of argue with them, to focus on fantasy. And this was this was largely about television. They had started to, you know, I would say, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I started doing a regular column for Insider that started as once a week and then became daily. Uh, 
And the idea that this was behind a paywall started to make them feel comfortable. And then it was, yeah, we're comfortable with it uh, on our audio platforms. You know, do it on radio every once in a while. Do it on – do start a podcast. Um, and so then all of a sudden it started sort of leaking its way into different places. Um, and people started to feel like as long as it's not on TV, we're more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just looking at now where it's come – Obviously, in a post-PASPA world, um, is is it kind of interesting for you to observe it from the outside now, being at Action Network and now ESPN? They have um, they have ESPN chalk. They have all these different uh, the Daily Corner show they put out. Uh, Scott Van Pelt's obviously always he's kind of been an outspoken gambling guy for a number of years now, but now he has the Bad Beat segment every night, and it's really become even more intertwined into the daily content. What's that like for you to, to view now that you're on kind of the other side of the aisle? Well, it's really cool. Uh, you know, I, there are times where I'm like, well, shit, I wish we had thought of doing this when I was still there as I was begging you to do, um, because I love working at ESPN. I think the people there are super smart. Um but the flip side is I wanted to do it even more aggressively than ESPN is willing to do it right now and felt like there was there were just much bigger opportunities. And the reason I left ultimately is is a really strong belief in what the churning group was representing in uh, the launch of Action Network and what I could do to be a part of it and and – um, how I could direct coverage in ways that did not require layers and layers of approvals and cooperation. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that there's still we're still in such early stages of what gambling looks like and um, how the industry is going to grow that it's it's too enticing to not want to be as fully immersed in it as I am. Mm-hmm. What was that transition like from, you know, going from ESPN where you had been for a long time, kind of the gold standard in sports media, that's where everyone wants, wanted to work and still does, going to Action Network, which you were kind of helping starting, becoming chief content officer, trying to hire new people. Like, What was that transition like going from, you know, a huge corporation to a startup? Well, when you look back, it feels totally insane. Um, <laughs> you know, like, uh uh, I left ESPN on, I think, September 17th, 2017, and the day I left, I had 500 people that worked for me in a big corner office and a pretty huge portfolio, and, you know, you generally don't willingly leave that perch, um, and then I went over to Action, and uh, that... Month, that was a Friday. That Monday morning, I was heading into the city and didn't even have an office. And um, my my first job was to figure out where our office was going to be because there was nobody even working in New York. I didn't have any anybody on my team. And my dad, who's in real estate in Chicago, I called him over the weekend and I was like, Dad, like I'm going to be looking at real estate on Monday. I'm going to be going around with brokers. And what am I looking for? How do I know I'm not getting screwed? What are the questions I need to ask? And He's like, well, how many people you got working for you? I go, right now. He goes, yeah, right now. How many people? I'm like, the people that will be in an office in New York right now. 
He goes, yeah, right now. I go, well, on Friday, five people, and now I have none. And he goes, he goes, genius move, son. That was a great idea. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like I, I sort of, I never felt down about it at all. Like everything felt like a new adventure, and everything felt sort of charming because the stakes were different. Um, when you're starting a business, now I was starting it with the Churning Group, who um, are very thoughtful and generous and strategic um, and supportive investors, right? And so, like in the first six eight months, when you're trying to build something, um, what success looks like is different than what it looks like at ESPN. And the pressures to of what you're doing publicly are different than what they are at ESPN. So, you know, where I lived and died was sort of fear of what talent on my team might tweet. Um, I didn't have to worry about that. Where if a project failed um, and it had taken a lot of resources, you feel some pressure and responsibility for that. When you're starting a new company, you're throwing everything against the wall and everyone is sort of looking for leadership and willing to try anything. So it's a much more liberating experience. Obviously, that changes over time, like the business matures and you hire more people and you finally launch and all of a sudden you're beholden to real numbers and real pressures and real financial strains. Um, But you're also experiencing successes in a different way. And in this space with gambling, um, the trajectory is so exciting that uh, the the feeling of ownership is much deeper. Mm-hmm. And when you say so you mentioned September 17, 2017, so that's pre-PASPA being repealed. And I actually, I remember I used to listen to your Behind the Bets podcast on ESPN. I remember you mentioning making the move. And I was like, I remember thinking like, wait, you can't you can't bet legally in the U.S. outside of Nevada. So how much did you have like an inkling that that was potentially coming uh, down the line that PASPA would be repealed and that states would basically be able to legalize sports betting at their own will? And how much was that like kind of a, almost like hitting the lottery for you guys right that day? So could you walk us through uh, what what the day of PASPA being repealed was like for you uh, in your seat? Yeah, it was it was pretty insane. So I'll take you back a little bit before that. It was uh, it was June of 2017, and I was actually in the middle of interviewing with the guys who run the churning group um, about this job, and I was sort of on the fence about it, and and weighing the options and thinking about do you leave ESPN or not, and uh, uh, a an alert came into my phone from ESPN saying that the Supreme Court had decided to hear the case uh, to um, overturn PASPA, which is the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, which was a law, a federal law that basically prohibited states from legalizing sports betting, except for states that already had it. So that it precluded Delaware, Oregon, and um, Nevada. And New Jersey had sued for the right to to legalize sports betting. And when the Supreme Court decided to hear the case, uh, that's when my interest in the job changed. And um, I felt like this was was gonna be bigger than people were anticipating. 
And that's because I had been following it for so long. I had spoken to a lot of legal scholars, a lot of Supreme Court scholars, people who had clerked on the Supreme Court. And they had always intimated to me, like, the court tends to take a case when it has a strong opinion, when it feels like there's something big at stake. And this felt like there was something high profile and big at stake. And so then I just did the math. I did some gambler's math, right? Like there were three potential outcomes in this case. The Supreme Court decides that PASPA is legal and New Jersey loses and um, nothing can can be done and, and sports betting doesn't become legal. Or the Supreme Court decides New Jersey, who brought the case, uh, wins and they are allowed to legalize sports betting, but nobody else is. And the only way they'd be any other state would be allowed to legalize sports betting is that they followed a very specific path that New Jersey did, which required amending constitutions and getting voters to approve and all this kind of stuff. And then the third option was going to be the Supreme Court decides PASPA as a whole is unconstitutional. Any state that wants betting can have betting. So I had a 66% chance is what I thought in my head that PASPA would be overturned. And um, I decided to play the odds. And uh, I felt like... I felt like even if I didn't win, um, there was a market for people who were interested in sports betting. And if you were going to run a subscription business, we'd be able to find that market. And it, it you know, could potentially be big. I felt there was a lot of opportunity in subscription businesses. Having been at ESPN, having run Insider, having seen how The Athletic was growing, I felt niche businesses in the subscription space were were going to be something that, that had a big opportunity. And so um, so I decided to take the job partially because of that. And so when PASPA was overturned in May, of uh, the, the Supreme Court heard the case in December. And when PASPA was overturned in May, um, I got more calls of congratulations than when either of my kids were born. I mean, I was <laughs> honestly hailed as a this and my mother-in-law called me and she's like this is so exciting I can't believe it you were right all along and you know she was like wondering what I was doing uh leaving my grandkids with an insecure life by going to work in some startup and leaving a cushy job at ESPN that she could tell her friends her son-in-law was an executive at ESPN and very important like <laughs> um so it it certainly at that moment um certainly uh, uh, sort of ratified a lot of what I've been thinking. But it's still a hard business. I mean, that was almost two years ago, and we by no means have we, you know, unlocked the, every key to success. And uh, certainly when there's a coronavirus sports shutdown, it, it presents a whole new type of challenge. Yeah, and you mentioned kind of the shutdown, obviously, that's been going on the last month from Action Network and just, you know, sports media in general. Like, what is your guys' plan to be just to get any kind of content out there, keep people engaged? What has kind of the focus been on? Yeah, so uh, it's a really good question. It's really hard. And every day it feels like we are reinventing <clears throat> the wheel. I mean, the good news is there is some semblance of news on a fairly regular basis. Um, about sports coming back or states legalizing sports betting or new kind of sports getting legalized. Um, we have focused a lot on social and because we felt like that's where the audience is going to be. And so 
in in many ways, this has been three weeks of our most creative period because all of our energy and brain power has been focused on having to come up with really creative ideas that we think will engage audience that work within our sensibility. So, you know, we I mentioned uh, before we came on, I did a mar- we did a March sadness bracket where people signed up, we gave away a thousand dollars to the winner. And um, the teams that advanced, the seedings were based on our analysts and the teams that advanced were teams that covered and we simulated every game. Um, we're doing in the middle of a uh, King of the Hill of the NBA contest, a one-on-one contest in which um, our NBA analysts ranked the top 64 NBA players, put them in a bracket, and they're playing each other one-on-one in NBA 2K simulations. We put odds against each one. And um, again, people have signed up to win prizes and things like that. Uh, we, this past week, you know, serendipitously, one of our founders, uh, who's a pretty high stakes gambler, accepted a challenge on Twitter to do 2,400 push ups in 12 hours. And that he, you know, and they bet $2,000. And over the course of the two days between when he accepted the bet and when he did it, a market of more than a million dollars. Uh, sprung up that was betting on whether or not he could do it all amongst these high stakes gamblers. And so we ended up streaming that. We launched a Twitch channel just to stream that and had at 1.8 thousand concurrence on this guy doing push-ups, and he did it in under 12 hours. Um, Jason Sobel tonight and tomorrow, uh, it's Masters Week, who is a, he is our golf writer. He worked with me at ESPN for a long time. He did a brilliant choose your own adventure imagination of this year's masters um, that is just as creative as anything you'll possibly see. So you're trying hard to be creative and think of new ways to talk about sports and sports betting and entertain people. Yeah, definitely a lot of interesting outside the box thinking going on with you guys. I definitely was tuning into some of those uh, push-up challenges. Did you uh, chip in and do any of your own while he was uh, while he was going for the 2400? Uh, everyone at Action Network will <clears throat> uh, happily tell you that I do uh, 140 push-ups every single day. And uh, I tell them that I do them all the time as part of my <laughs> bragging to make them feel inferior. Why Why 140? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because that's usually as many as I feel like doing before I'm like, I'm tired and I feel like I've done enough. I'm not looking to, you know, get Schwarzenegger on anybody. I'm just looking to stay in shape. That's fair. So what do you do? Seven sets of 20? Is that the... Uh, That's interesting if you really want to get into it. I was was doing a set of 70, a set of 40, and a set of 30. And then after the push-up contest, watching Jonathan Bales do the push-up contest, he did like six at a time throughout the entire day. Then he did like five, and then he did four at a time. So this past week, I've actually been doing sets of 30, but doing five sets of 30, so I've upped it to 150. Wow. Yeah, there we go. At least, you know, during these times, uh, you can get a little little more muscle mass. It's good. Good for everyone. That's uh, great, but, too, by the way. I haven't told anybody that, so this is big for you guys. 
Yeah, that is, <laughs> that, that is huge. Thank you very much uh, for that scoop. Um, but you, you spoke a little bit about Jason Sobel, your, uh, one of your guys' major golf writers over at Action. And a little while ago, you guys announced a huge deal with PGA to launch Golf Bet, um, which basically makes the PGA the first professional sports league in the U.S. to take a direct cut of of uh, money from from gambling, which is uh, pretty exciting to actually see that come through. So, um, I guess generally, what how do you guys come about that, and uh, what are your what are your goals for for that website? So we talked to all the leagues, and they're all really interested in in figuring out how to get into the sports betting space, and and we've been very we very impressed with the PGA Tour and how they were thinking about betting and how progressive they um, how they how progressively they were thinking about what they wanted to do in the space and so over the course of several months just many many months of conversations trying to figure out what the right partnership would be and what made them comfortable and how they felt okay with potential revenue and how they felt okay with partnerships and branding and what worked and what didn't uh, we came up with Golf Bet which yeah, we're amazingly excited about. Um, we're essentially all of our golf content lives under the golf bet umbrella and in conjunction with um, the PGA Tour. And guys like Sobel, guys like Darren Ravel, guys like Josh Perry, who was a regular analyst for us, um, they're integral to that partnership because they bring some credibility and authenticity to the coverage. That makes it more than just hey, go pick this guy um, because they report they report on the business they know the players. Um, it brings a level of comfort to the PGA, and um, it makes it a pretty holistic experience for for users and for us both at Action and PGA as partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And there's one thing I wanted to ask you about the Action app uh, specifically. There's one feature you guys have that I love, and a couple of my friends we always talk about the halftime countdown. So if it's an NBA game, NFL, college, anything like that, it'll show you kind of the countdown when the second half starts. Where did you guys uh, think of that one? Because it seems so easy, but none of these other sports apps have it. Well, look, our product team is is pretty fantastic, and it's the beauty of of the Action Network. And one of the things that excited me was um, this is a space that has been devoid of the best talent and product and tech and and media for a long time because it was hard to figure out where to go with it um, as a career. You know, there weren't many places that you could grow into something. And if you were going to be one of the best product people in the world, you were going to go to Google or you're going to go to Amazon or you're going to go to a startup that had sort of a much more scalable opportunity. Um, Same if you want to be a writer or an editor or whatever the case. But because sports betting – um, is now legal, it changed the scale of the opportunity and it opened up the talent base uh, considerably. And our product team is fantastic and, and sort of we all know that urgency drives decision making and urgency drives action. And so they're always thinking about how can we um, best exemplify urgency in in this space. And so they came up with the the halftime counter, which, um, yeah, it's truly, it's just awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's perfect. 
for getting those uh those second half bets in. It's, it's key. Um, and you you ran a, a couple of blogs uh, during the NFL season, basically talking about a uh, 256 or bust, I believe is what you called it. But basically, the roller coaster that is betting every every NFL game uh, during the regular season. Like you and uh, one of your friends had a basically a head-to-head competition. And it's something that Tyler and I's background, when we started this podcast like a year and a half ago, we were in like an NFL pick em pool, and we'd pick every game against the spread. And we've won a couple times, but we always had fun chopping it up. That's how we got started here. So I think it's interesting that you actually went ahead and did it, because Tyler and I, was, we always make the joke that like if we actually just picked every game that we took in the pool, we'd, we'd probably do better. Then we do just going with, say, the three to five to seven, whatever the, the number of bets you end up taking on the NFL Sunday. So how how was the first full season for you doing that? Um, because the record the record was pretty strong in year one. It was amazingly strong. I might be better at this than anybody else in the world. Um, <laughs> it, it was super fun to do, and, and it started as sort of a joke. I, uh, for years, had been doing head-to-head pick them uh, – on every game during the season, during the NFL season, with my best friend growing up in Chicago. And we play only for pride. Like, at the end of the year, we would send each other second-place trophies. And the the sort of um, stakes for what the trophy should be kept getting bigger and bigger. And it used to be like you'd send a trophy for finishing second and a trophy for the worst week of the year and a trophy for you know, the lowest point total of the year, whatever, the, the biggest margin of loss for the year, whatever it is. And then one year I sent him a trophy that was four feet tall and he had to put it together with his kids. So, he would, <laughs> right. And then um, another year, oh gosh, like it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then last year after he lost, I sent him... It's a. Do you know what cameo is? Yeah, yeah. So Brian uh, Baumgartner, who played Kevin on The Office. Mm-hmm. I have teenage kids, and he has teenage kids, and every teenager in the world loves The Office right now. And so um, I did a cameo with Brian Baumgartner and sent him the script that he had to mention my buddy Matt. He had to mention his kids, and he had to mention how shameful it is for them that he keeps losing. It's a cameo. And sent it to Matt, and it was so good that it was truly um, – it was impossible to to top that. And so um, I said to Matt, look, like, why don't we pool the money that I would spend on getting you a trophy? You match it. Let's make a bet on every game for the year. And I'm so good at this that we'll probably end up winning. And he was insistent that he get to play too. And so I said, fine, we'll split it. And so each week we chose eight games, and uh, we ended up winning, like, at a 56% clip. Yeah, I read your article recapping it. I wanted to know, are you guys planning on doing that this year, uh, this upcoming season? Because I know there was some controversy where you switched one of his picks, and then that got aired out. <laughs> and then uh, he went on a vacation at the end of the year, and he told you to just pick whatever you wanted, and you did really well. So yeah. I wasn't sure if you just, you're abandoning him to do it on your own. Good question. Uh, I would never, I would never abandon him. Um, we haven't figured it out yet. I will tell you, uh, we haven't decided yet, but I will tell you. You know, hope, we're just hoping there is an NFL season. But um, we decided to take our winnings. We each put in 
$400, and so it was 800 total, and I think we ended up winning something like 1400 We ended up up like 1400 and so we decided to go to the most expensive, fancy sushi restaurant we could in the city and just blow it all on that. And um, we did that and then some. At one point, he started ordering, literally ordered the entire side of the menu. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good way to celebrate. Was there any team you followed, like, throughout the season that you were winning consistently on or any trends like that? Dolphins. 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 The – you know, the Dolphins got blown out so badly early in the year by the Patriots and the and the Ravens that they were 16 seven-point underdogs for like three straight weeks. And after those first two games, I watched them play the Cowboys and like the Cowboys should have been steamrolling them and it looked like they were going to in the first half. Uh, it looked like they were going to, but the Dolphins played pretty tight. Then the Cowboys um, in the second half sort of built their lead and ended up covering and then the next week, the Dolphins played the Chargers, and again, they were 17-point dogs, and they played really well through three quarters, and but again, lost it in the final quarter, and it was clear they were playing hard, and they just didn't have the talent, and then they decided to start Ryan Fitzpatrick, and I just always love Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's a bit of a gamer, and he's a guy who uh, they don't, if they, if the games are close, uh he will keep the back door open, mm-hmm. but in games where they're down, it's a very good possibility. He'll just make the games closer for the Dolphins, but he's not going to get them to win the game. And so uh, I just started I just started betting the Dolphins as much as I could every single week, and uh, it worked out okay. Yeah, Fitzmagic really is a – he's a cover machine, uh, so it's, he's perfect for something like that. Uh, I do want to ask you, so you guys ran a Fade Ravel promo over at Action Network for uh, basically the entirety of, of the NFL season, I believe. Um, at any point, did did you actually feel bad for him? Because no. some, some of those challenges that he lost were pretty brutal. No, I never feel bad for Ravel. Um, <laughs> he's also like, look, he's a gamer, and the the best thing about Darren is that he is entirely authentic and enthusiastic and his enthusiasms are really what um propel his personality and um why people are interested in him or have strong feelings about him one way or the other it it truly is the attraction um and so he was so enthusiastic about doing these challenges and what was happening to him and they were getting bigger and bigger every week and so uh, he was game, and as long as he was game, we were game, and um, I never once for a second felt bad. I will say, like, the last one he did, uh, you know, the, the challenges were if he loses a bet, he has to do a dare. And, um, you know, the last one was him having to bob for his cell phone in <laughs> of ketchup and it was so disgusting uh after he lost a patrick mahomes super bowl prop it was so disgusting that one did make me cringe but (laughs) i didn't feel bad for darren i just was disgusted by it 
what was the brainstorming process like? Did he come up with those, or was there like a a committee of uh, Faderville yeah. prop makers? It was a uh, it was a group of people uh, uh, who were thinking about this on a regular basis. He has a, a regular editor, and you know we're not that big of a team, so there were four or five of us who would sort of bat them around, and uh, so yeah. Yeah, he whatever he puts out, he elicits a reaction, so it's definitely a good thing. I wanted to ask you, uh, as we discussed earlier, you went to IU. What was it like to be there during the Bobby Knight tenure? Amazing. It was so great. It was um, – look, they, that was the – this is the early 90s, so it was – Damon Bailey and uh, Calvert Cheney and Greg Graham and Chris Reynolds and Pat Graham and um, Eric Anderson was on those teams. And look, that team my senior year with Calvert Cheney, who was a top five pick, and Greg Graham, who was a first round pick, and that those teams were, you know, they were number one and two for two straight years. They went to the Final Four against Duke the year before when I was a junior and um, – uh, that next year was the Fab Five year, and they were uh, in constant battles with Chris Weber and Juwan Howard and Jalen Rose. And, you know, one year Indiana came from like 25 down in the second half to win on Valentine's Day in 1993. And uh, it was awesome. Like, the games were magical. And every time they were playing, every bar was packed, and you'd go to a bar and, you know, you'd sit you know, BW3s or, you know, back then back then it was called BW3, now it's called Buffalo Wild Wings, and you just camp out for away games, and uh, it was it was just the best. It, you, you couldn't be a basketball fan at IU and not appreciate Bobby Knight because he was so good at defensive strategy. Uh, you know, there were plays, I remember very specifically, we were playing Ohio State, and they were amazing, and, you know, it was a competitive year, and he designed a play that where Chris Reynolds ended up being able to draw a charge on an inbounds play where that was the only chance Indiana was going to get the ball back, and he's brilliant, totally brilliant guy. Um, It's just a shame that he's such a jerk, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. he graduated and learned that he was a pretty bad dude um, and um, not a very nice person, and... Uh, he, I, um, was working at Sports Illustrated after college and there was an investigation about, you know, him choking players and, uh, Robert Abbott, who was a producer at CNN, who broke that story and did a brilliant 30 for 30 about it. Uh, I was supplementing reporting, um, on a separate story for SI at the time and I had to make a bunch of phone calls to players in and, uh, I didn't get very far with the phone calls, but Bobby Knight wrote a letter after the story came out saying we didn't even try to call anybody, and he knew it wasn't true, and I just sort of felt like the guy was um, a pretty mean uh, dude who um, did not have anyone's best interest at heart except his own. Yeah, I think it was such a big moment this year when he came back for a lot of uh, kind of the older school IU fans and people who had been there during his tenure and I think for for us, we kind of knew of him growing up, right, a, a little bit at IU, but mostly the uh, when he was at Texas Tech with his son and they had the show on ESPN. I'm blinking on the name of it, um, but it, it it really was an 
a pretty cool moment, even in, even though IU ended up losing the game uh, versus Purdue. But uh, when he came out there and Isaiah Thomas is out there, and obviously he's not he's not in the best of health now, but that's yeah. that's an, a really an interesting story. So back then when you were at IU, did they have Kilroy's in sports? How was how was the downtown Bloomington? Uh, yeah, they had, there was no back then. It was, uh, it was Kilroy's, then across the street from Kilroy's was a BW3, and there was a place next to it that I forgot what it was called. It was like a – maybe it's called the Upstairs Pub because yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, it was upstairs. And then across the street from that was Nick's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the rotation was usually like go to Nick's, get a bucket, go to Kilroy's, go back to Nick's, get a burger, have another bucket. Um, quieter nights, you'd go to Upstairs Pub, play darts. Uh, basketball games, you went to BW3, uh, you go to the, uh, I think it was the Bluebird, to hear <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, there was also a bar, like, around that part of town, which is so different now, it's so built up, sort of around the square, um, where, uh, like, City Hall is and stuff, but back then, like, nobody really went over there, the Bluebird was over there, Peanut Barrel was there, and, um, you know, Peanut Barrel was a was a pretty a pretty uh, down market bar, and like that's where you'd go if you just wanted to disappear and not. That's uh, yeah, that's funny. A lot of the same hits that are still there between Kilroy's, Nick's, Bluebird, Upstairs, a very underrated bar in my opinion. Grayford. I agree. Like, by the end of my by the end of my senior year, it was probably my favorite bar. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, it it is it's great. It's just so under the radar. Nobody knows it's. I mean, yeah, it's literally upstairs, but it's a great spot and yeah. good good to get in some cricket there. But Chad, you've been extremely generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you, thank you for joining us. This has been great. Where can our listeners follow you and and find the Action Network and uh, kind of give give all your plugs here? Yeah, sure. Follow me at Chad Millman on Twitter, M-I-L-L-M-A-N. Follow Action Network at Action Network HQ. Follow us on Twitch at Action Network HQ. Follow us on Instagram, same, at Action Network HQ, actionnetwork.com. Download the app. It's free. Um, And, uh, you know, let's bring back sports.